This is CX of M Radio, the voice of customer experience professionals. for taking the time to listen to the show on today and a special welcome to those of you who are listening for the first time. Welcome to the world of UX audience. As is the case when we usually when we wrap up a a series, especially when it's long, we want to have a little segue. We want to have a little break. We want to give ourselves a chance to breathe, to digest everything that we were going over recently before we get into the next wave of topics or or whatever it is that we, we choose to cover over that time. So uh, a lot of times I will, in between series, I'll do a Q&A and there, and there are times that I do what I'm going to do tonight, I which I commonly refer to as UX potpourri. It's just going to be a mix of a lot of different things and I have a list of topics that I want to cover for this episode. So it's going to be pretty rapid fire. I'm not going to take one topic and run off for a very, very long time. I want to sort of just touch on some things, which means I'm not going to get into a lot of depth, but I'd like to give all the listeners something to think about with regard to all of these different topics that I am going to present. So rapid fire tonight, folks. Are you ready? Here we go. The first topic for coverage on tonight came up when I learned that there are 300,000 graduates from the Google UX program. Now, a lot of you have heard me talk about this program uh, at, at some time or another. You've seen me share things about this on social media. You've seen my talk on the trouble with UX education. You see me touch on different things with uh, in association with this program, but this is a different factor that I want to touch on today because we're talking about the number of graduates. 300,000. Does anybody, I know we, we can't interact directly right now, but uh, so I'll just ask the, the question. We'll present it rhetorically and hope that people will engage us with critical thinking. But have you ever heard anybody complain about having trouble finding a job as a new UXer? Have you ever noticed that while some people say that there are no entry-level jobs, there are entry-level UX jobs. I, I personally have seen it, have hired people into entry-level jobs, have screened people, I, I, and I know a lot of other people that do it as well. It is realistic. We need to know and understand that there will never be a, a, a market that is predominantly entry-level. So it's interesting that people complain about not being able to find these jobs when they actually have a lot of them. And I'm not criticizing folks. I'm just bringing up a fact. And I used to be you and I know and understand it that a lot of these comments and these complaints are very, very biased. So uh, they're not hiring anybody. You only feel that way because frankly you want that, you want that entry level gig. 
And and so you complain about it. If you weren't trying to get that entry-level gig, it wouldn't be on your mind. Fast forward three or four years. We'll check and see if those same people are complaining about the lack of entry-level gigs. Pretty much guarantee you that on average, no, people won't be complaining. But that that's all beside the point. The issue is this. We know that there is a, a shortage of entry-level UX roles out there. And that will always be the case in a sense. I mean, I, I almost hate to use the term shortage because in reality, the market will never be inundated with openings for entry-level people. That That's just the way it, it works. That's the way it goes. And so when you're trying to get that first UX job, when you're trying to to get your foot in the door and things of that nature, when you're, and, and let's even back up, when you even gave thought to becoming a UX professional, it's interesting that people did not take the time to find out what the market was like beforehand. We used to look at, back in the day, we would spend time looking at the occupational uh, handbook. It, it was a book that was published that would always be at at different places that would help people, the different job core and things like that. This book was readily available so you could see what the market was for a particular type of job, what the outlook was, so you could have a realistic state of mind as you were moving forward in preparing to get into that type of work. Um, Again, 300,000. If there's a shortage of UX roles, entry-level UX roles, and this is just 300,000 graduates from the Google program. There's a lot of other graduates, a lot of other folks that are, that are uh, uh, coming from other programs, and they're hoping to get their first jobs too. It is inundated out here. And so I just want to just give a sense of realism tonight with regard to this, this glut if you will, of, uh, of people who are coming into this arena trying to get jobs. And it, there was already a shortage of entry-level gigs. And actually now when you look at 300,000 graduates, that means that those numbers are getting drastically worse. They are going to be drastically worse. So just hoping that folks will, will <laughs> sort of wake up to the, 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 real, the realistic scenario that, that folks are operating in now that uh, go after the job. You love UX, you want to be in UX, that's great. I'm, I'm pulling for you, uh, but you got to be realistic and you got to do your, your best to present yourself in the best way possible so that you can qualify. And, you, and you're going to have to be patient. And it is an uphill battle. So just a sense of realism. Somebody's saying, damn, man, you sure are a, you sure are a Debbie Downer. It's called realism, folks. It's called it's called the world. Uh, so get ready for it. Prepare and go forward. Go go out there and get them. Number two, the next thing I wanted to address has to do with design challenges during the interview process. This is something that is grossly dysfunctional, as is the hiring process in general, with regard to to UX. These, a lot of companies have design challenges. And in particular, I had a person that wrote me on LinkedIn. We were going back and forth about a scenario that this person was experiencing. And a lot of other people experience the same thing where there is a, you, enter, you apply for a job, 
you get selected, you get interviewed, and you get to the certain point where they say, okay, now we're going to have a design challenge, and I'd like for you to take this scenario and take it home and work on it, and then when we have the interview, you come back in and present all of your design ideas. And in general, design challenges are, they're sort of awkward anyway, because they're usually very unrealistic, because you're doing something in a fraction of the time you would normally do if you were working. So um, and when you think about the fact that a lot of folks don't know how to hire UX professionals anyway, and then you get subjected to an unrealistic uh, c- uh, scenario, uh, it, it makes it even worse. So people who don't know how to judge talent ask you to do something that makes no sense, that's completely unrealistic, so they can pick the best person for the job. It, the whole thing is, it's really, it's really wild. It's really crazy, and I've seen very few scenarios uh, where design challenges were given, and they did really give the hiring uh, party what they needed to know to to evaluate candidates properly. But this one scenario that the person on LinkedIn was talking to me about was really interesting in that the person said that they went to the design challenge, they presented their ideas, and they didn't get the job, but later learned that the things that they presented were implemented. Folks, a lot of of companies are having design challenges and using that as a means to get design ideas. How unethical is that? It is absolutely ridiculous that somebody would do something like that. When somebody asks you to do a design challenge, be careful and, and ask questions. And I can't tell you to not do it. I know people that will not do a design challenge. I know folks that will auto, just just flat out, nope, I'm not going to do that. Uh, people have said that when you do that, you should be paid for it. I mean, if they're going to implement your work, yeah, because that, that was intellectual property. It, it, it's really sad that folks are doing that, but it is becoming increasingly common that people are engaging in design challenges and then basically have the things that they presented in this, what they thought was a hiring process, the things that they were that they presented are being basically stolen from them and implemented for the company's financial benefit. Really, really sad. Next topic, told you, rapid fire today. The next topic is what, uh, uh, there's something, a phrase that was introduced to me at one time during my career, and I found myself using it quite a bit, and I want to just bring it up today just to get it on folks' radar, and it's that of Frankensteining. And this has to do with design. And Frankensteining is, are you familiar with the old classic uh, monster story by Mary Shelley? There was this mad doctor who who took, <laughs> it's, it's really morbid when you think about it, very morbid, but they took body parts from different people, assembled a human being based on all of these body parts, and then brought the this monster to life one person's arm, another person's leg, things of that nature. Now, somebody may be saying, what does this have to do with design? Well, a Frankenstein design is just like the monster in Mary Shelley's story. A Frankenstein design is a very incoherent, inconsistent experience, which usually comes out of situations where you have people in different silos, designing different parts of an experience, one person's arm, quote-unquote arm, another person's quote-unquote leg, 
uh, another person's hand, things of that nature, so to speak. You have different parts of the experience coming from different places. And so consistency is not going to be achievable in such cases. And quite frankly, this happens a lot when people engage in design sprints. When designs are being executed by people who do not have design expertise, because people who do not have design expertise and don't understand the science of design, those are the folks that don't understand how to achieve consistency. I've seen those kind of people slinging buzzwords, which was something I, which is really my, my next topic, so I'm going to overlap here. They'll talk about consistency. They don't know how to achieve consistency across different parts of the design, and many of them don't even have the authority to address the other aspects of the design. And they, they talk about consistency in a way where it's, 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 they're comparing apples to oranges. And it's funny when you hear people who don't understand design, I know they mean well and all that kind of great stuff. But the truth of the matter is that when people are Frankensteining, people are, are doing different things in different ways and bringing different parts and trying to put things together that don't work. You know, then this also happens. I just reminded that this kind of thing happens when you have uh, someone who will say, well, Google does it like this. And then they bring their little idea from Google. And then somebody else says, somebody else says, well, Apple does it like this. And then they bring their little suggestion and, and you can't piecemeal these things together. It simply doesn't work. And so you end up with a Frankenstein. You end up with a Frankenstein-oriented design. So we want to make sure, as user experience professionals, it's our responsibility to herd the cats in such situations. We want to make sure we're laboring in a way where we have consistency, cognitive consistency, folks, (laughs) not apples to oranges, cognitive consistency. We want to make sure that people are understanding your users are understanding, make sure our stakeholders understand. And, and even if you have a participatory design uh, uh, environment that you have to work under, it is still the UX person's responsibility to direct everybody, keep your hand on the steering wheel. Keep your hand on the steering wheel. You might not be able to, to do certain things and other people are going to be contributing at different in different ways, and 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 that's just the, the 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 nature of the beast in a lot of places where we work today. But as the user experience professional, you own the user experience. I own the user experience. So you want to make sure that things are being presented in a proper way, so that the user wins, the business wins, and the team is represented properly, and the discipline is represented properly. So beware of Frankenstein designs and beware of these buzzword slingers. I, uh, to, to move on to that topic a little more, uh, I was in a, a meeting one time and I started talking about cognitive load. And the next thing you know, two people that were in that meeting started going to other meetings and talking to people about cognitive load. They didn't know what cognitive load was. I explained it but they didn't know what it was and they're not studying it. The, the user experience professionals are the ones that are going step-by-step step and looking at the, the overall experience and looking at the micro experiences and trying to make sure that all of these things are, are, are structured in an optimal way. Uh, but other people, I, I hear people mentioning 
things like cognitive load or mental models or 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 even clicks. People who count clicks, they don't even know that counting clicks is a myth, and, and it's something that people are not counting clicks. And the people who who do or they mention something about clicks, they read an article somewhere. Users, I've never been in any research project where users were counting clicks. Never experienced it one time in my entire career, uh, but people bring up the clicks as if it's an issue when all you have to do is give them value along the journey and they're not worried about different things. Make things relevant, give them value, uh, uh, give them a sense of achievement and understanding and you don't have any issues, but you don't have to count clicks. But buzzword slingers, these are the article readers. These are the people who who want to be involved, Who some, the kind of person who wants to take over, sort of commandeer the user experience by, usually by bringing up a buzzword, a concept that they don't really understand, but they will bring it up in discussion for the express purpose of looking smart, uh, being able to influence the design more than they should be influencing it, things of that nature. So beware of Frankenstein designs and beware of the buzzword slinger today. Next, we want to talk about two hidden aspects of UX work that I rarely hear people talk about. And so you're listening today. Let's make sure this is on your radar because remember, we're not the interface people and very little of the work that we do is actually visual. Uh, very, very little. So it's really funny how, how it works out that how many people will spend time focusing on on things that are are visual when everything that we do is pretty much behind the scenes. We we do the things that are under the skin. We work on the skeleton. We work on the sinews. We work on the tendons. We work on the muscles. But we don't work on the we, – we speak to it. We care about it. But we don't produce that level of – of the experience that that's somebody else's responsibility for the most part. We're very involved, very little, but here's some of the hidden pieces, risk mitigation and error mitigation. That folks is part of UX. Are we designing in a way where we are eliminating or minimizing risks for the users and risks for the business? Are you able to identify when there are risks, when you do find a risk, it is our responsibility to make sure that the design, that the experience, that the user flow, the task flows, the way the information architecture is structured, the way the search experience works, whatever it is, it is our job to make sure that risks are, again, eliminated or minimized. And then there's a second type of mitigation that we need to be aware of and operating in, and that's error mitigation. Are we doing things so people don't make errors? And if there is an error uh, or, or an error does take place, because they're going to happen, you're dealing with humans, there's going to be errors. Are you structuring a way in your experience that you are designing? And, and don't get into the argument of whether or not we can design experiences. What you're designing results in an experience. So from that perspective, we're designing an experience. People are going to have an experience based on what you designed. So we're not going to split hairs and we're not going to get into semantic battles and things of that nature. The truth of the matter is, if you, some, you design something and somebody uses it, they're going to have an experience. So what we do can determine whether or not there are going to be risks. We can eliminate them. We can work on them. What we do, if there is an error, and there, again, there will be errors, have we, within the design, 
provided ways to communicate when there is an error? Have we done things within the design to help people to understand what the error is and how to recover from it, to give them next steps? Those types of things, folks, risk mitigation and error mitigation, mitigation go under the radar when it comes to our work. And so we want to make sure that we're good at that. And that has nothing to do with your Figma work. That has nothing to do with your sketch work. It has nothing to do with your XD work. It has to do with understanding the human mind and understanding what people, how they're perceiving things, the mental models, how do they expect it to work? What is it that they need the, the resource or the solution to do so that they can either execute or recover themselves from a bad situation within that task flow, within that experience. Are you putting things together so these things can be eradicated, minimized, or at least give them a way to recover themselves if and when something happens that's undesirable? That is what UX people do, folks. And that leads me to the next topic, hiding behind tools. I did not realize this was happening until not too long ago where everybody was talking about what tool do you like? What's your favorite UX tool? What is the tool that you just couldn't live without? And I constantly get into these conversations and I'll say, well, the most important tool of every UXer is the human mind. I even had somebody ask me one day uh, directly at a company I was working at. The person said, so Darren, Darren, you, you've been doing this a long time. What is the main tool of a UX professional. And I looked at the person and I gave them the same answer that I give everybody else, the human mind. And he just looked at me. He said, no, 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 that's not what I mean. Well, you asked me what tool. There is no tool that, no, there's no software. There's nothing that can replace or circumvent the human mind. Do you realize that if you can't explain or talk about what you're trying to accomplish without a Figma or an XD or any or Webflow or it, I don't care what it is, do you realize if you can't explain what you're doing, you're not really doing UX. You're doing what I'm get, what I'm getting at here. There are a lot of people today that are hiding behind tools. They know Figma. They know Axure. They know UX Pen. They know Balsamic. And so everything they do has to do with those tools. Everything they talk about and, and everything that they're trying to learn and, and master, they're not trying to master the principles, the methods and methodologies and the techniques associated with the discipline. They're trying to, to master a tool. And then everything they do revolves around the tool. That is is an indication that there is a, an issue. And I would challenge somebody today, if you're trying to be your best in the discipline, be good at the tool. I, I get it. I know why you're doing it. But please know and understand that the tool is not the pinnacle of one's operation in the user experience profession. The tool is an extension of our thinking. It is an extension of our strategy. It is an extension of our problem-solving capabilities. It is an extension of our critical thinking. It is not the end-all, be-all. And so when you have the tool, now you take everything that you've done internally and you use the tool to make those things tangible so that people can interact with them. And, and, and really, it doesn't matter whether it's 
whether it's Figma or X, it doesn't matter what it is, because UX is a tool agnostic discipline. So it doesn't matter what tool you're using to execute things, because if you take five different people with five different tools and you never know what any of them are working on and all you see is what they produce, that's folks, that's all anybody really cares about. It's what's being produced. So it's time for folks to stop putting the emphasis on the tools. Some companies that are hiring, they don't even want to hire people unless they know a particular tool, which is a sign that their UX maturity level is very, very low because they are tool dependent when the discipline again is tool agnostic. So don't hide behind the tools. And yes, that does include design systems. There are people that will spend all of their time working on a design system And a lot of times, the design system work that's going on is not even UX. Truth be told, there's some UX that's associated with it. Some people are going to hate this, and then they're going to troll me, and they're going to hunt me down, and they're going to try to say all kind of crazy things. And when you you finish throwing your darts and and saying your words and doing all kind of things and engaging in the character assassination, the truth still remains. And it's interesting that they don't get that. The truth is still there. It is problematic when people represent the discipline by way of tools instead of the showing what you can do to bring value to the business, showing what you can do to solve problems, showing what you can do to eradicate issues and drive more customer loyalty because folks have such a great experience. That's not going to happen because you had Figma. The customer that is buying from your company doesn't even know or care what Figma is They want to know if they can perform a task in a quick and efficient way that helps them to accomplish accomplish their goals. They don't care about the tools. They don't care about your design system or any of those things. And, and, And people just are hiding behind these things. And you know why? People hide behind tools because they know they don't know the discipline. I have also seen people now, especially in Figma, I've seen people in Figma that are starting to, they're starting to add resources to the Figma plugin library and templates that are increasingly difficult to navigate. So now these are UX people that are rolling out things with a terrible UX. So you don't, if you're trying to do the UX work, you're not trying to get all in the weeds about all these weird little nuances because it will actually slow down the work and does all kind of, it'll do all kind of interesting things. And again, it detracts from the work. And I know people that are fantastic when it comes to Figma and things like that. But when it comes to UX, they're not that, they're not that skilled. So these kind of people will divert your attention to the thing that they're good at and divert it away from the things that they're not good at. And I'm going to say this too. I had another scenario that happened during my career where my focus was, I'm a very bottom line person. So if you are, if we're trying to get, in this particular instance, we're trying to provide, it's happened some years ago, trying to provide a a good prototype, a good working prototype that works so well that we can use it during usability testing. That's what we could do, or that's what we wanted to do, I should say. And so I'm trying to bottom line it. As long as it works, like the real site, when we get when it gets there, when we get to testing, 
I didn't care about a lot of the different things because I had issues trying to use some of the more complex functionality at the time in Axure and things of that nature, but I could fix it where when you sat down to use this thing, you thought it was the real site. So in my mind, that's all I care about. Someone else came along and they were more skilled in Axure than I was. I didn't say that I was an expert in Axure, number one. That person came along, didn't like the method. And, and, and this is funny when, when UX workers, how did the person work? Did they accomplish the goal at hand? Uh, that's what's important. How you get there also doesn't matter. And we are not all going to work the same way. But there are people who will be very nitpicky. They will be very controlling. And they want you to work the way that they work. Uh, which is very awkward, very strange, and is not really required. Remember, all we needed was to go to, to something with testing that worked so we could get our actionable data. That's it. Who cares how we got there? And, and somebody made a big stink out of it, and, and it really was inappropriate. And we went to testing with what I had, and it was a huge success, and we got all the data that we needed, and the person is making issues because I didn't use uh, uh, Axure the same way that they did. Fast forward another few weeks from then when there was something else going on with another one of the websites that we were working on, I happened to have been responsible for a complete brand at one time in my career. I knew and had sat in on meetings with JD Power and Associates and knew what happens with OEM, automotive OEM websites and what the best practices were so that we could drive the best the best experiences and so we could get the, the accolades we were trying to get to drive success for the brand, the other person didn't have any knowledge of any of those things. And they, they made some recommendations that we can't do that because uh, when people use OEM websites, they're looking for X, Y, and Z. And I knew that. And so I told the manager that this is what we need to do. And this is the reason why I said, by the way, do you know I used to be responsible for this brand and this brand? over here, and then I used to sit in on these M-West, they call them M-West studies, M-W-E-S, and I knew all the ins and outs, so I began to share that, and my boss did not know that, and so she took that information to heart, and they went to go ahead and implement it to make sure that we could do the right thing with our design. So the person wanted to nitpick about something that didn't matter, didn't have any knowledge about the thing that did matter, did I run her in the ground because she didn't know? No, I just shared what I knew, take the team forward, you can learn about it and you can go forward. But it's just interesting. And it, it reminds me, that reminds me of that, the, the gross um, inter, interpersonal dynamics issues that are taking place in UX today where there's a lack of interpersonal skill, the lack of emotional intelligence, where people don't know how to engage, where they do have, when they find out that you know something that don't, they don't know, and then they get upset, they're jealous, and they have the inferiority complexes. All these things create problems. So we want to be better than that today. We want to be sharper than that. And, and we don't want to hide behind tools. We want to be good at the discipline and then use the tool as your extension. And don't worry about who doesn't, doesn't know a tool. You can learn a tool at any given time. It's not a big deal. Next one, as we come into the home stretch today, the issue of... I saw a, a post one day on social media where somebody was talking about how they won a UX design award. And, and I've been seeing these for the last few years. 
the vanity of these UX design awards is absolutely astounding. Think about it. UX is not about visual design. UX is about, I think about Jesse James Garrett's five planes. It's about finding out the requirements, finding out any, any functional specifications, understanding what the goal is of the project, understanding what the design problem is that you need to solve, putting together a solution for that. And, and depending upon how your team is working, you're going to maybe start iterating on things after you've discovered all the requirements and understand what's going on and what you're being tasked to accomplish. You've validated to confirm that this is something that is legitimate. Yes, we need to be doing this. Yeah, because UX people are supposed to be doing that. Don't don't just do something because somebody said do it. Maybe you don't even need it. So you need to you need to find out, or maybe you need to tweak the the direction that you're going. So these types of things are critical from a UX perspective. But long story short, the only way to be able to give somebody a UX design award is to understand what they have done on their project from the ground up, number one. Number two, if you're going to give those individuals or that individual a UX design award, that means you have to evaluate everybody who, who is out there who's done any UX work, and that is a huge undertaking. It reminds me of something like the Academy Awards or the Grammy Awards. They take everybody's work into consideration. Even though some people campaign for different things, and, and that probably happened in these cases as well, but they take a broad scope, a broad range of possibilities of, of things that have been produced into consideration and then they take the ones they feel are the best, and those are the ones that get nominated for the awards. That's not happening in UX. So that that, that whole UX design award thing is, is really a joke. And it, it, it can't possibly be legitimate because of the lack of, uh, of breath in the examination and the lack of objectivity. It's really sad. So don't, don't worry about that. If you got a UX, the people who get UX design awards and, and actually celebrate them are that's folks. That's another type of toxic positivity. It's, it's not, nobody has seen enough to give anybody those awards. So just throw that out. Let's go do the work, take the, take the discipline forward, not, and, and not engage in vain individual accomplishments. That really, that really is silly. It, it, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be done. Folks are going to, they're going to hear it. Some people will hear this. They'll blow it off. You know, that's fine. But again, it's true. You can't, you can't get rid of the truth. And it's true. Last one is, uh, did a show recently, uh, uh, with, uh, Debbie Levitt and Dr. Nick. And, and one of the topics that came up was somebody was, they were, I think they were talking about one of the book lists I had done. I think that may have been how it came up, but they were talking about, wondering how it is that we have time to read as busy as we are or things of that nature. And, and, and I was reminded, I'm just going to focus on my response because I, I said something and later on I went back and I thought about it and I thought, yeah, I'm just going to address this on my show. And it's that when it comes to reading, I said on the show that I used to read more earlier in my career and I read less now. That is true. That is accurate. However, oh, and also, I got to say this too, I tend to cherry pick. If there's a book that I feel is viable that I need to get into, I'll buy the book and then I'll go through it a little bit at a time here. Might not revisit it for three or four months. 
go and look at it again, but I'll cherry pick. However, in thinking about what I had said about not reading, I was reminded of something that one of the reasons I like reading and I like looking at books a lot is because as somebody that's considered to be a thought leader and an influencer, I think it is critically important to constantly get input from other sources. When you're an, a real influencer, not these people who claim to be influencers, not that stuff and not this UX celebritism stuff that's going on all over the place. When you are a, a true influencer, when you are someone, I'm an educator, I speak all over the world, I do a lot of different things. When these types of things go on on a regular basis, I think it is absolutely critical that you are taking in someone else's thoughts. So I might not read as much as I used to, but I spend a whole lot of time listening to other people because I want to hear other people's perspectives. I never want what I'm saying and what I'm doing to be the pinnacle of where I live, if you get my drift today. And so when you're constantly exposing yourself to other people and hearing what other people think, it, it sharpens you. It will help you to be more diverse. It will help you to be more innovative. It helps keep your thinking fresh. It, it helps you to look at other perspectives and not be living a life that's where you're orbiting around your own thoughts and, and all of the things that you're doing and coming up with. I do not want to live like that, and I refuse to live like that. So I always expose myself to what someone else is doing, taking the time to understand other people's perspectives, taking the time to to sharpen myself based on the things, the thoughts that they're presenting. They have a different thought process. They have a different, they're operating, I should say, on a different wavelength. I want to be exposed to that. I don't want to just live in my world, so to speak. It's critical to the success of everything I do to hear where other people are going, where their thoughts are going and what it is that they're presenting to the masses. I think it helps to keep us sharp. And also, it's not just going and learning new things. It's important that we go back. If you read book A, B, C, D, or E, and then you've matured, you've grown, you've shifted, you've advanced, I have to go back, and I've always made it a point, to do it, and I just haven't been able to spend much time lately doing it, so that's gonna change. I need to go back and reread things that I used to love because when you reread something that you digested some time ago, you will, because you have advanced, because you have matured, because you have pivoted, you will see things and digest things differently based on the new level where you're living. So when I think about the importance of reading, and that's my, my final point, it is so critically important. It's something we must do. Again, I don't want to orbit around my own thoughts. I want to know what other thought leaders are saying. I want to know what's important to other people. Even if that's a counterpoint, I want to hear it. I need to hear it. And I think that those types of things are critical to being sharp in the discipline. Otherwise. You get caught up in the things that you come up with and you won't give the proper value to what other people have to say. So that's why I constantly do that. Never had a problem with it. Uh, just sometimes you just, I just notice you get so busy and you don't do certain things as often 
as you need or as often as you like. And that could prove to be detrimental over time. So I just thought I'd share that little tidbit uh, <laughs> that I had on my mind today. And I'm, I'm happy to spend more time reading going forward to shift so that I don't get into that state of mind. And I hope you're with me on today. So folks, that, that is all the time we have for this session of UX Potpourri, just sharing a lot of thoughts that I have about these. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I believe I threw in a 10th one there. Well, nine or 10 different subjects that I hope you find helpful. I got a little really personal and um, and, and, and started going through a little bit of a retrospective here about myself, hearing things that I know that I want to do. But I hope you found this beneficial today. I hope you're able to sharpen, sharpen your saw today by, uh, by hearing these things. And then we are going to next week, the interviews are starting to come in, folks. And I'm looking forward to sharing more voices from the UX community. Again, same thing. Same thing I was just talking about so that we can have a broader perspective so we're not stuck in our own gear, just focusing on the things that we want to hear, the things we do or the things we say. Got to hear other perspectives that will keep us sharp. And it really helps to bring a strong sense of health for us personally when it comes to the UX community at large. But that's it. It is time to sign off, folks. So this is Darren Hood the host of The World of UX. Thanks for joining us today. But until next time, happy UXing, everybody. Thanks for joining us for this session of CX of M Radio. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show and visit cxofm.org for more resources.